welcome to What Goes Around podcast. I'm Eamon Murtagh. I'm Anne Frankenstein. And we've got a lovely jubbly show for you today. In fact, we've got some brilliant little features for you. First up, we're just going to talk about what it's like to finally have the dance floor open again. We're also going to be chatting to the brilliant journalist and music lover Jessica Lipsky. She's got a new book coming out all about that highly underrated, highly prolific record label, Daptone. Can't wait to dig into that with her. And I am going to absolutely relive a childhood obsession in that I'm finally going to talk to the one and only Anne Dudley. That's Anne Dudley from The Art of Noise, if you don't know her name. She is not only one of the great innovators of synthesised music in this country. She's gone on to win a blooming Oscar. She's our first Oscar winner. She's done a million soundtracks for a million different films and she is a delightful lady who really loves her music, takes it all with good humour and really it's a very refreshing and interesting interview. So I hope you enjoy it as much as I do because I was cooing, wasn't I? (laughs) (laughs) You were, me too. What a woman, just like... Honestly, we could have spoken to her for hours. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I've still got the seven-inch single I bought the day of release, and uh, it, it changed my world. So I was literally licking the microphone. <laughs> anyway, let's get on with it, shall we? Let's do some podding. Let's do some podding. Why not? We're here, aren't we? Let's just get into it. Pod it like it's hot. Marita, what goes around in your world this week? I am back, baby. I am back, back, back with a capital B-A-C-K, back. Is that it? You know, I'm not really sure what I expected to happen there, but I'm I'm very pleased to be playing playing out live again, Mm. and it is a joy. And um, I did my first gig with actual people being able to dance and sing and move around. Because I was going to say, sorry to interrupt you, but you have been playing gigs, bits and bobs, when things have opened up. Yeah, little bits. Briefly, but they've always been very sanitised affairs. In fact, Mm. you were advised... Or or pleaded with by management not to make people too overexcited, which must have been quite a difficult prospect. So now you're back full on with the, the raving hordes and masses allowed mm. to make people dance as much as you like. Yeah. And uh, to be honest, like, so let's say last summer we did a few little gigs and it was just, you know, listen, keep it calm. We don't want people to get so we would like you know, digging deeper, playing the bits of gospel and, you know, more kind of laid back soul. And just that was all very nice and just keeping it. But it's become harder and harder as people have just got more and more ready for it to end. You know what I mean? And literally a couple of weeks ago, I was playing records that literally you would play at a funeral and people were getting on the tables <laughs> dancing. I, I, what kind of records <laughs> did you play at a funeral? <laughs> so, I don't know, you'd start, you know, just playing normal stuff, like, you know, just kind of, st- still not the maddest tunes, but like I played a little Latin thing and everyone started getting up. I was like, oh, mm. fuck, what am I going to do now? I've got, to, I've got to turn it down. So I turned it down and they were still going. I was like, oh, I've got to change the vibe. And I mean, it just got desperate to the point where I pulled out at one stage Perfect Day by Lou Reed <laughs> in the hope that when they can't dance to that, no one can dance. That is literally a funeral tune, isn't it? Yeah. They went absolutely bonkers crazy. And it was just, there was no, there was no way of keeping a lid on this boiling pot of people. Well, the weekend the band was supposed to lift and then it didn't. That we just couldn't, you couldn't stop people. Yeah. And uh, the police came in and just shut us down. That was the end of that. 
I was like, um, okay, stop. And uh, that was, <laughs> so we stopped, you know. But we were trying really hard to keep a lid in it. You just couldn't stop the vibe. Mm. And now the gloves are off, and the gloves are off. And we had uh, our first one with dancing and shouting. It was we were, like it was quite nice. We were outside um, under a sort of a tall pole, in, but it was it was definitely breezy, and it was you know it's a really nice one. The world and his wife showed up and went absolutely ballistic. I, I was a little bit nervous because you know it's still out there; it can still do your damage, even though I've had me jabs and stuff. And it's you know you're just not used to it. I, yeah. I'm sure you felt the same because you've had a gig now, and just the whole thing of going out there in in public is is kind of a trip. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I. I've kind of taken a whole 18 months off of DJing. I haven't really played. I played one gig, I think, in Spiritland while things were sort of opened up. But that was like a Sunday afternoon, chill day mm. thing. I mean, you know, that's like even funeral music. <laughs> we're going to move those people <laughs> eating their eggs on toast and stuff. Um, but I've sort of tried to move away from playing live gigs because I was sort of finding the whole thing exhausting anyway. So I've been quite picky about the gigs that I've chosen to go back to. I've done one Wednesday night gig at a venue in central London, which was actually really busy. And I was very surprised to see how busy the streets were when I couldn't get a cab back. It was like this was like a Wednesday night in the middle of town. And uh, I, I was I was shocked to see how, uh, how busy the streets were. They were teeming. And um, then I played another gig at The Social, which is one of my favorite venues on earth, probably my favorite venue to play a couple of weekends ago and like the social have kept everyone going doing uh, after work drinks on Twitter. They've sort of built this whole sense of community around it. So that was like a really nice homecoming. Um, your mate, Andy Bell, was playing mm-hmm. uh, in the basement that night and it was all quite quiet and, and pleasant. And, you know, the, the decks are up on the bar. So there's a, a foot or two between you and the punters and uh I loved it. I mean, I wanted to curl up in a ball and fall asleep once it got to about midnight. <laughs> yeah, I'm just... totally not used to that anymore. Oh, oh my, my God. stamina is out the window. <laughs> How'd you cope with that? Well, you know me, I'm a, I'm a big advocate for the afternoon disco nap. Yeah. Uh, um, because, like, I'm like, listen, I can stay awake and I can I can keep doing my stuff, especially if I'm having a drink at the same time. But um, your concentration levels, like, you know, it gets to about 11, 12 o'clock. And if I haven't had a sleep, I am not playing well. Do you yeah, know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So I try and get a, get a good good hour's kip in the afternoon before I play a gig at least. Um, and that normally sets me up. But my God, as well, the, the next day, because you come home, you know, I play a gig. And uh, this one we played at the Hops where everyone was dancing. I mean, it was just... It was a fantastic night. It was, it was really brilliantly good natured. Uh, we played all the big tunes that we used to play and a load of new tunes that we haven't been able to play because yeah. they're just too rowdy, you know. And I really felt like a bloody DJ for the first time in ages. <laughs> like I remember just cutting across to this, this one tune, uh, the Mr. K edit of Thelma Houston, and you know, big pianos and everyone going bonkers. And I thought, ah. Oh, this is what I've been missing. Mm. And it was marvellous. But then, of course, you come off on a high and then you get home and it's like two o'clock in the morning and you're still buzzing around the flat, you know. So no going to sleep really till gone three. And then the, ne- <laughs> the next day, oh, man, I was just dead, it's dead, killing. dead. The gig I played on the Wednesday night in town was, uh, that was quite a weird setup because it was all seven inches 
And um, it was nice because it was only two and a half hours and it finished at 10. <laughs> all of those <laughs> factors, all of those factors made me say yes to the gig. Um, although I was dying after the two and a half hours. I mean, half nine is my bedtime usually on weeknights. So it's a bit much for me. <laughs> you need toughening up, man. You've lost your, you've know, lost your hardcore. I know, I don't think I, I don't think I want to be toughened up. I quite like it. <laughs> I go to bed at half nine. I wake up at six. This is my life now. Mm. Um, but uh yeah, like as soon as there was like a hint of something danceable or familiar or and that wasn't the point of the night. I mean, the whole thing was like it's supposed to be seven inches. I don't really know why, but I imagine it's because, you know, strange and unusual stuff that you only get on seven inch. Yeah. But uh, anytime anything was even marginally familiar, you know, you'd get people attempting to to get a dance floor going. This is on a Wednesday yeah. night in a bar. <laughs> so people are dying for it. Do you feel like this is going to open things up to you that like, because sometimes, you know, you play a gig and you do feel like you have to try try a bit hard and sort of pander a little bit just to get the dance floor going. Do you feel like now there's going to be just a renewed energy where as long as you're playing something that's good, people are just going to get up and dance to it because they've got so much st- stored up inside of them from, you know, being yeah, stationary yeah. the past 18 I think months? That, I think there probably is something about that in that... Um, Certainly, uh, over the last year or so, I've been playing a, a lot less well-known things. Mm. I, I've been playing a lot more kind of... Because we've been digging a bit deeper. And also, because people have mostly been sat down, there's just been less in-your-face requests and all that sort of stuff. So, And I have really, really enjoyed digging deeper and, and playing different things. And that has been really good fun. And certainly, when when we did the, the big dancey one, you know, we were playing records that maybe wouldn't have got of that sort of reaction mm. last year they, they maybe they would have been like a few people who were into it oh this is cool but a few people just go oh play something we know mm. you know but, but they definitely went across a lot more i still got asked for abba i mean that's part of the course <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you don't even have to mention that that's yeah, just like yeah, part yeah. of the landscape i think there is going to be a real renaissance in 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 party in people really getting into the party actually getting up and dancing there was no hanging about do you know what i mean there was no like oh let's toe tap a bit and then they were like by i think it was by half past nine the floor was full and we started at eight mm. and it was you know there was already people on it by half past eight but i mean it was full to the point where it took five minutes to get to the bar by, by about half nine and it stayed full until half one or whatever it was you know, um, God, so your energy. I'm, I'm, my energy is d- depleting just listening to you <laughs> describe that. Jesus, but it, you know, it's, the dance when, floor is still going. But when you're there and it is buzzing like that, it feeds you as well. That's you true. know, I came out electrified. I was just like, whoa, this is great. And then I spent like three days giving myself lateral flow tests, making sure I wasn't going to die. Oh, God. <laughs> that is a worry, isn't it? Big sweaty, yeah. sweaty dance floor. Oh, yeah. I mean, I just more so than DJing. I just cannot wait to go out. I'm a coiled spring. I will go out and dance to any old shit right now. I need to find a Saturday night and just go out and have a mad old night out. That's yeah. what I'm dying for. That's the one where, you, you know, you just, you know, I'm playing this Saturday. Come see me at Clissold Park. Clissold Park? <laughs> shit, that's just up the road. You might there see you me go. There. there you go. I don't know if that's wild enough for me. I want to stay up all night. Listen, baby, you ain't seen me play. <laughs> Fair play. I have actually. Yeah, it is have. pretty wild. Yeah. <laughs> I won't. I won't, won't labour the point. But yeah, good times ahead. Um, just everyone stay safe and you know enjoy yourself and uh, try and try and keep healthy.
Next on What Goes Around podcast, it ain't retro, or is it? We're going to be chatting to Jessica Lipsky, brilliant author and music journalist and music lover, all about her brilliant new book, focused on the great Daptone Records. We just want to dig into the to the book a little bit. Obviously, I often refer to it probably mistakenly, you know, the Daptone sound as the soul revival sound. Am I going very wrong there? How do you define the Daptone sound? I mean, I would also say it's um, revivalist uh, in a sense, but um, Daptone are very keen to not be labeled as retro. This music, even though it's paying homage to 60s and 70s funk and soul, is very much present, is very alive, and those in the know would say um, this is very much a present day sound. What makes it present day? How do you make that distinction? Um, the fact that it's done by current musicians who are making their um, their own arrangements, uh, writing their own lyrics, and you know, putting um, contemporary spins on things. For me, the Daptone music it is an analog sound and everything, uh, but it does have, a, I think, a very modern feel to it. And I think what I, what first attracted me to all of that music, really, it definitely has an old feel in some ways. But there was a brightness and a quality and a kind of a definition that really didn't exist uh, in in the 60s, for example. You know, really, there wasn't that kind of um, attention to detail, maybe. I think perhaps in those days, people were a bit more rushed through the system. Do you know what I mean? You, you got pushed into a room, you did your five songs, you got pushed out of the room and then they mixed it and that was that. But it felt like they took a very... Um, detailed eye despite using this very old school analog equipment i would say that's very well said um yeah so daptone are very very particular uh, about their sound very um exacting very nuanced um in the same way that um motown's barry gordy you know wouldn't put out something he didn't like uh gabe roth and neil sugarman won't either um i think that there, there's a quote in the book from a, um, a DJ named uh, Matt Weingarten, a.k.a. Mr. Fine Wine, and he he's, um, is a Detroit-born, New York-based, um, massive soul collector who says that when he's listening to old soul records, you know, the quality is varies from record to record, even within the same label. You have to adjust the EQs and the pitch, and um, Daptone records are not like that. Um, even though they're attuned to the sort of imperfections that were on those 60s and 70s records, um, theirs don't really have that in the same way. 
they also made a, a great effort to f to find talent. Do you know what I mean? And they and I what I found interesting because I, I did have an argument with someone uh, a while back who was suggesting really that they were kind of scalping old talent. And, and I, I didn't get that. I really got the feeling that, that, that this was kind of a team, that they, they felt like they belonged to each other. And it, it's really interesting to see sort of the cross-generational uh, closeness, really, that the whole label and their output managed to create. Absolutely. Um, it's very, very much a uh, family affair at Daptone. Um, I would not say that they were scalping old talent at all. From um, Lee Fields, who you know was working in real estate in New Jersey, to Sharon Jones, who had been trying to break into the industry for decades, but had been working at a prison and as an armored car truck driver. Wow. Um, and uh, Charles Bradley, who was performing as a uh, James Brown impersonator. These weren't people that they drew in necessarily from other prolific singing careers. These were, you know, folks whose, whose careers were very hard won, who came to fame late in life. And all of the musicians, you know, were playing in various projects, but you know, sort of came together over time and space because they shared um, a same, a similar attitude. Jessica, you're obviously a, uh, an accomplished music journalist as well as being a DJ and you're a broadcaster as well. Um, I'm curious about what led you to want to tell the story of Daptown. Uh, first and foremost, I'm a fan. Um, I've loved soul music my whole life. I grew up on a lot of oldies radio in California and um, it, you know, big bands, big arrangements, soul music, um, funk really spoke to me. And I always wished I could see something like that live um, as I grew up. When I found out about Daptone Records, I was just like, oh my God, this is new. This is, this is happening. Like I could, I could see this and it completely changed my life. I would not be sitting here today talking to you, obviously. <laughs> I suppose my vested interest is as a journalist, just seeing um, Daptone who, you know, have gotten a, a lot of great press um, and have multiple documentaries put out about them. Um, just have them really put in context in a book. <laughs> interesting thing as well where you particularly with soul music uh, in the past there, there's a lot of exploration of the artists at the front you know there's a lot of a lot of books about Otis Redding there's a lot of books about Aretha that, and and various other artists that are throughout the whole canon but really when you get into the the core of it I don't think it was until maybe uh, maybe 10 20 years ago that people really started realizing that these were like soul families and, and the bands that played and the producers that played were really tight. And like, you know, the, the Funk Brothers at Motown, for example, the Muscle Shoals groups, you know, these were, um, they, they laid the whole foundation for everything. And without their input, uh, these stars, as great as they were, wouldn't have been able to achieve what they managed to achieve. Daptone seemed to 
be doing that themselves. Do you know what I mean? That they've got a family there and they can welcome in talent. But at, at the bottom, there's kind of a core of people, isn't there? Yes, certainly. Um, especially uh, with the house band, the Dap Kings, who were the backing band for Sharon Jones, but also the studio musicians on Amy Winehouse's Back to Black. Their horn section um, played on Uptown Funk. Um, they've done work for Lady Gaga, for Adele, for Kesha. So there's really this um, sort of deep pop legacy um, that a lot of folks don't know about. And um, that is an important part of Daptone's story. I loved it. The title of the book and the fact that it's already kind of putting paid to some assumptions or preconceptions people might already have about Daptone. Is there anything in the book that you discovered writing it or with your research that you think might might surprise people? Oh, sure, so much. Um, <laughs> I, I think um, one thing that probably won't surprise uh, record collectors but might surprise fans was just how long they the label was working um, on this sound, um, you know, both in studio and on the road. Um, you know, they put out some of the first records from Lee Fields, for example, in 30 or 40 years, and they couldn't sell them because it was too new. Um, so they would take these these monster records that they were really proud of um, and scratch them with newspaper um, and make them look old and beat up so they could sell them because the the sort of culture around collecting is is such that you don't want anything new, right? The way you talk about, um, you know, them having to uh, earn their right even to sell their records, I, I, I really get that because when I first came across Charles Bradley, for example, I was very suspicious because, you know, I collect lots of soul stuff and I kind of kept seeing this this face in the racks and I kept thinking oh, who is that guy do you know I, I don't remember reading about him before and you know I, I know quite a lot about this kind of area so and then eventually it was the owner of um, Sister Ray Records here in London uh, a guy called Phil and he he basically said uh, no it, it, he's an old singer but they've got this new sound and there's a there's a passion in there that is really true to the to the whole scene and, uh, you know, I, I was I was very dubious, I have to say. So I can understand why they had that kind of um, struggle getting people to take it because the vintage crowd want it to be old and the new crowd are suspicious that, you know, it, it's not really new and that it is just some old thing. Absolutely. And I, I think that um, the their fans were absolutely won by the road mile. Um, you know, Daptown puts out amazing records, but they are show people. Sharon Jones and Charles Bradley are meant to be seen, to be experienced. Um, Charles Bradley in particular, I've always thought is um, a really difficult act to see. Um, I could, you could hear his pain um, and his, his personal history on his albums, but when you would see him live, it was like being punched in the gut. And then you would say, oh, God, please, can I have some more? Um, and I, I think it's rare to 
experience um, that level of intensity. Can they keep going in the in the the style of you know uh, some of the the great houses of the past, or is it, are the fashions going to change, or will that matter? Do you think? Um, well, so Daptone's celebrating their twentieth anniversary this year, but um, the heads behind it have been operating in the sphere since um, the mid nineties. Um, I think that Daptone has, you know, really had to pivot since Sharon and Charles passed. They went mm. from being, um, you know, these road bands to really having to do different kinds of production um, and giving other members of the family sort of a chance to shine. Um, Dap King saxophonist Gochemia just came out with his second album of spiritual jazz and like indigenous rhythms. Um, they are putting out music from um, the Middle East. They have a, a Cuban big band that they're play, um, putting together a second album for. Um, so I think that um, Daptone was sort of forced to think ahead, and now they're you know just trying to like use their platform to elevate other artists. Um, I think that within the um, soul community, uh, interests have changed. It used to be people were really into hard funk and like the nastier the rhythm, the better, um, to a sort of mid-60s style around like the time of uh, Amy Winehouse and um, maybe into the 2010. And um, now you see a lot more sweet soul, or in California they might call it lowrider oldies, and um, also like psychedelic soul. So I think that um, you know, as long as Daptone continues to maintain its great taste and good ear, which no one has any doubt will happen, um, they can continue to be a major force in the soul and funk scene. Absolutely, Jessica Lipsky, thank you so much for writing this book. And uh, thank you so much for speaking with us. Dudley is an obscenely talented composer, arranger, producer, and performer. She's a fellow of the Royal College of Music, was nominated three times for an Ivor Novellan Award. She's won two Brit Awards, a Grammy and an Oscar for her score for the British comedy The Full Monty. In 2014, she was presented with a Basker Gold Badge for her outstanding contribution to the music industry. And all of this was after she helped change the face of electronic music forever through her work with Gary Langham, JJ Yaxalik, Trevor Horn has the art of noise. 
If Kraftwerk were the austere Teutonic robots that forged the electronic sound, the art of noise were a collection of eccentric British scientists working from a shed in the bottom of the garden who injected a sense of fun into the scene, some eclecticism and endless innovation. I was 14 when I first heard Close to the Edit, a song made up of car ignition sounds, clunks, thumps and fart noises presented by masked musicians, annotated by a young Paul Morley, and it introduced me to the music concrete, Italian futurism, and changed the way I looked at music forever. So it is a massive understatement for me to say we're honoured to have Anne Dudley on the podcast. Welcome aboard, Anne. Oh, wow, that was an introduction and a half. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's a lot to cover, man. I was skipping uh, stuff. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I've been a big fan since I was a wee nipper. Um, I absolutely loved your work right the way back um, in, was it 1984, was it? 1984, yeah, that sounds about right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, well, that record certainly changed the way I listened to music altogether, and it's such a delight to talk to you today. And, I, you know, as a as a fan of the art of noise, then looking at the rest of your CV, which is a telephone book of accomplishment, I can't believe how much you've done. <laughs> you've been a very busy woman. Well, you know, I keep trying to find something I'm good at, you know. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> you never know, something, something will click one day. <laughs> well, it's a delight to have you on What Goes Around. It's so nice to talk to you. And you're here to share some of your phonographic memories today. But I'd like to talk to you a little bit about all of these brilliant film scores you've done and all of the work you've done uh, since The Art of Noise and perhaps touch a little bit on those early days with the, the sampler when basically I think you were like one of 10 people in the world who had access to a sampler. Uh, yes, probably. Um, we were all working with Trevor Horn who'd, um, he'd earned a lot of money by producing some hit records and he was looking for something to invest in, I think. And he invested in this machine called the Fairlight Computer Music Instrument the Fairlight CMI, which was an Australian thing. It looked like a washing machine, actually. It, <laughs> I mean, it's, it, it was quite high tech, but sort of very inelegant, shall we say, mm. a sort of clunky thing. And um, JJ really got into the, the idea of programming it, and he learnt how to use it. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't easy. Um, it sounded terrible, actually, at first, because the only samples that you could actually use, the, the, the only the length of the sample was about a second and a half. Wow. And uh, it cut off all the top on the sample, so you'd put in a nice shiny cymbal or something and it would come back all muffled and dreadful. And it's really a tribute to Gary Langan, who was the engineer, found a way to make this weird sound that this instrument produced somehow interesting and palatable. And I was there as a sort of musician element, I suppose, because I would sort of get these sounds like the cars and the, the, um, the rhythm sounds and the voice sounds and things and start playing tunes with them and chords with them. And um, we really had, we were just messing about really. We, we had no idea <laughs> that it would be anything that anybody would be interested in. I was vaguely aware of the music concrete um, exam uh, experimentation mm. of John Cage and those sort of people. So I sort of thought we were forging this sort of avant-garde classical path. And then I'd go home in the evenings and um, they put on these hip-hop beats. <laughs> and I come back in the morning <laughs> and my classical experimentation was suddenly sort of boom, 
which well. was pro probably a good thing, really. <laughs> Else I don't think anybody would have taken any notice of it at all. I mean, it was the most amazing thing I'd ever heard in my entire life. Oh, uh, that's wonderful that. you should say that. It's so, so nice that obviously it made a big impression on you because you never know at the time. And, yeah. Um, I suppose it didn't really sound much like anything else at the no, time. And when Close to the Edit came out, and, and it was a hit single. Mm. It got to number eight or something in the charts, which in those days meant a lot. Yeah. And we were astonished, really. Um, it, but, but it was certainly, I listened back to it occasionally, and I am, I am amused by it. And, <laughs> um, and, and I, I think it's funny, and, and I think humour in music is something that you very rarely come across. It's yeah. hard to pull off, I think, humour yeah. in music, to be mm. fair. Yeah, it's hard, isn't it, really? Do, do you see the influence of, of that track and that era of your music making? I mean, do you see that reflected in contemporary music now? I don't see the humour mm. and the sort of cheekiness of it. I mean, people use samples all the time. That's, that's a given. But... I think we were doing something slightly sort of cheeky and subversive mm. with them, which I don't really see much of nowadays. Mm. Yeah, there was a definite sense of uh, fun. I mean, the, the interesting thing about it, I think, especially with the, the first album, was that there was a lot of fun, but there was also some real darkness. You know, there was some really scary... As a, as a kid, I remember listening to <laughs> Instruments of Darkness and going, oh my God, what's going on? Because I remember I bought this single the first day it came out and it had a little punch-out centre, like a, a token. And if you saved the token six weeks later or something, you could get 50p off the album. Uh -huh. So I went and I handed my little token over at the thing. And then I got the album and I was expecting more fart noises and car starting. And then it was Instruments of Darkness and chop, chop, samples chop, chop. of South Africa and all yeah, this sort of stuff. And yeah. my tiny mind was blown, Anne. Yeah, well, I, I guess we were just... Um, we, we came across some, some wonderful, um, wonderful samples mm. of very extraordinary politicians. <laughs> um, I mean, 19... What are, what are we talking about? 1986, it was very much a different time time you know and mm. ian paisley yelling never quite <laughs> a thing you know then you went on a, an amazing journey as well because uh, you had all these soft moments like moments in love which are still classics that i hear all the time when i'm being driven from gig to gig because i'm djing about quite often we'll slip onto magic fm or something and moments in love will come on i'll be like ah oh, turn it up, turn it up. <laughs> sitting in the back enjoying that but you know then you went on with a, a real string of excellent fun top 40 hits you know with, uh, Dragnet and Legs and, uh, of course, yeah. the Tom Jones Kiss version. Well, we did Paranoia with uh, Max Oh, yeah, Hedrin. Max Hedrin. Max Hedrin was famous for about five minutes. Yeah, it was I it loved was, him. It was fun. <laughs> we, were, we were just sort of, yeah, we were having fun, you know. It was all novel. It was all new. Mm. Yeah. It's funny hearing you talk about approaching those sessions initially. You know, you were brought in as sort of the, the musician. I mean, prior to making that, that music is... What what was your what was your kind of musical life about? I mean, I guess we can incorporate this um, into talking about your first phonographic memory because the one you've picked as your first track, I imagine, is one that w appeared very early in your musical life. Yes. Well, um, I mean, it's going to make me sound extremely ancient. Well, I am extremely ancient, but um, when I was growing up, I mean, there wasn't a lot of music in the house. Um, my dad had 78s, you know, not 33s or 45s. He had some 78s. 
and um, generally there wasn't a lot of pop music in the house um, though I will talk about that a bit later but um, one of the first tracks that I remember one of the first records that I remember hearing and loving was The Ugly Duckling by Danny Kaye and I remember I must probably about five six seven and I remember the bit that I used to wait for every time it played was the last verse where it just transforms itself, this funny little tune. It used to sort of annoy me until we got to the bit where the ugly duckling, um, not a quack, not a thing, not a waddle or a quack, but a glide and a whistle and a snowy white back mm. and a head so noble and high. And that used to just make my heart sing that bit <laughs> and I just used to to wait for it and think this bit's so good <laughs> and I, looking back on it I suppose it's probably when I wanted to be an arranger and a composer really to, to be able to make that effect with music because of course I couldn't analyze what was happening yeah. uh, musically but I just knew that it it took the thing into a whole nother realm <laughs> All through the winter time he hid himself away, ashamed to show his face, afraid of what others might say. All through the winter in his lonely clump of weed, till a flock of swans spied him there and very soon agreed. You're a very fine swan indeed. A swan? Me a swan? Ah, go on. And he said, yes, you're a swan. Take a look at yourself in the lake and you'll see. And he looked and he saw and he said, I am a swan. Whee! I'm not such an ugly duckling. No feathers all stubby and brown. For in fact, these birds in so many words said, the best in town, the best, the best, the best in town. Not a quack, not a quack, not a waddle or a quack, but a glide and a whistle and a snowy white back, and a head so noble and a heart. That's incredible. Like, how old were you? Do you think when this song sort of was in your orbit? I think six or seven. That's amazing that you can sort of trace that that moment back of just noticing, you know, kind of dismissing the rest of the track and just noticing that one part that would have been, like you say, up to the arranger to create that moment in music. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I've, I've, because I heard it. Again, not long ago, and I and I I had exactly the same feeling, and I remembered, yeah. you know, that's one of the reasons why I chose it for this podcast. Yeah, um, we spoke to Labby Sifri a while back on the podcast, and he talks about he was very he had a lot of conviction talking about pieces of music that that sort of arrive in your life and completely change the course of your life forever. <laughs> I mean, yeah. if it hadn't been the Ugly Duckling, do you think you would have? 
there would have been other music that would have sent you off in that direction to become an arranger, get involved in production and scoring? Oh, I think so, because mm. there's several other several other tracks since which have had something of the same effect on me. There's a wonderful, wonderful duet from the musical Annie Get Your Gun, I Can Do Anything Better Than oh, You. Yeah, great. And again, the, the version with Howard Keel and Ethel Merman, mm. the arranger just sort of has a field day with it. <laughs> And um, it's just musically, it's so clever and so uh, inspiring. Mm. Yeah, that is a perfect piece of music. I, it, it makes me so annoyed when people try and trivialise music from musicals because there's so much going on in that track and it goes off in every direction. And yeah. like, yeah, there's a lot of power behind that piece of music. Yeah. So when you were listening to uh, The Ugly Duckling, Danny Kay. Was, was this purely um, an audio experience for you? Because I, I remember I used to sit with my mum on Sundays and they, you know, there would be westerns and musicals and we loved Danny Kay. I just thought he was so much larger than life and all those films were in glorious Technicolor and stuff. But was your, is your image of that really from just an audio form? Oh, completely. Yeah, completely. Wow. Um, I don't even know what Danny Kay looks like, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't recall ever seeing him on, on, on any sort of video. Oh, you've got to look it up on YouTube because he's, yeah, he's, he's a brilliant I know, performer. I, I, may, I may not, actually, because it just may spoil it. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, that, that's always <laughs> true, isn't it? No, I can't, I can't have that uh, taken away <laughs> from me. It's like when you read the book and then you see the film and go, oh, the no, character doesn't look like that. No. no, no, <laughs> no. So were you kind of, you know, you say there wasn't much pop music in your house growing up, but did that kind of, you know, did you become a sort of music obsessive slowly throughout your childhood? How did you sort of settle on knowing that you wanted a career in music? Well, I started learning the piano when I was seven and um, I started learning the recorder at school like most kids mm -hmm. do. And most mm -hmm. kids don't like playing the recorder, but I yeah. loved playing the recorder actually. <laughs> Um, I still play the recorder again, uh, occasionally, and um, then our school acquired a clarinet, and the clarinet was to be for the best recorder player, and my goodness did I want that clarinet. Ah, never have I desired anything more in my life than to have this clarinet. And anyway, I did actually get the, clar the clarinet, and I just, music just sort of seemed very natural for me. Um, I mean, I wasn't a prodigy or anything but it just never occurred to me to give it up mm. and after a while it never occurred to me to do anything else in my life mm. other yeah. than music um, and sort of sort of conventional old-fashioned musical education which yeah. I'm very grateful for really it's amazing you, you can come from what you might what you describe as an old-fashioned musical education and then end up making the most cutting-edge music the 80s had seen i mean that's quite a journey isn't it well yes but i mean music is music and um mm. the next record i've chosen which is 25 or 6 to 4 i mean it's it's based on a what you might call a ground bass the same bass line sort of going down over and over again i mean you could relate it back to pieces by Purcell or Bach. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, with 25 or 6 to 4, um, this is a few, few years later, and by that time we'd acquired one of those tiny little 45 players, and my eldest brother, Chris, bought 
this single, bought one single, that's the only single I remember him ever buying, 25 or 64 by Chicago. And um, it's amazing, actually. I still think it's an amazing sound, an amazing record for its time, because I think it's probably about 1969, 1970. Mm, it's quite cool. old. And it's got this incredible guitar on it, played by Terry Kath. And... Um, completely meaningless lyrics <laughs> and brilliant brass writing. I mean, the yeah. brass on it sounded so different to the brass on Motown, to the brass on sort of Philadelphia sound. And I think it's because um, in Chicago there was three brass players as permanent members of the band and it was led by the trombonist, incredible musician called James Panko, who did the arrangements. And if you actually listen to the brass, the trombone is very prominent and much louder than it normally is, because normally brass is sort of dominated by trumpets. But um, the trombone sort of leads the whole thing. And there's some amazing brass chords and stabs and things in this 25 or 6 to 4. Mm. And then what really got me was the guitar solo, which sort of starts quite sort of ordinary. And then he switches in the wah-wah pedal and it goes completely mental. story about Terry Kath because he was a very very talented guitarist a lot of other guitarists really rated him but he had a terrible struggle with drink and drugs mm. and he also had a penchant for guns oh, and yeah. the two I mean blimey <laughs> pepper two things didn't come together and and he sort of he had an accident one day with a gun which he was messing about with and he didn't know it was loaded and he shot himself with it. Mm. And he was about 30. And it's, it's so sad. And I, and I hear this piece, 25 or 64, and it's quite sort of moving, really, because this talent is all sort of, it's sort of encapsulated in this very vibrant, energetic, three-minute single. Um, yeah. and, and you sort of wonder, you know, what other what else he might have done. It's, it's really sad, yeah. but it's a great, yeah. great track. It certainly is. And I, I watched a, a documentary on Chicago and um, that period where, where they basically, they'd had a load of hits and they were really on the up. And I think what they did is they, they either bought themselves or rented a ranch and they all went out there to, kind of to record. I and mean, they just had a party for like six months and then it ended so tragically 
Yeah. And you're so right about the way that the brass works in there. So there's a big gang of them, wasn't there? Chicago was a massive group. There was about seven or eight people in it, I think. I think there was seven, yeah. Yeah. So um, there was a, there was a lot of a lot of egos bouncing around, a lot of drink, a lot of drugs and guns. It was never going to end well, I suppose. They reached this point where they had a load of hits in this kind of dancey brass way, and then uh, sort of the second half of their career, it was all ballads. And all, <laughs> there's this brilliant interview with the with the brass section guys just all standing around and goes, yeah, it's okay, except for, you know, they were spending 40 minutes of the gig doing nothing and, uh, you know, <laughs> just got to a point where I'm just thinking, wasn't this supposed to be a dance band where we all played the hooks, you know? Yeah, yeah. Very well, difficult. Even, um, if You Leave Me Now, which is probably mm. their biggest hit, I mean, there's there's a French horn on there, <laughs> but there's, there's the brass section don't appear. And yeah. they just sort of turned this corner. And I mean, the ballads are very good in their sort of mm. wonderful American ballad way. But it's it was just such a complete change of direction because they, they were quite experimental in their early albums and did great long suites of pieces and complicated time signatures and, yeah. you know, complicated structures. Um, and then they sort of stopped doing that. <laughs> Yeah, their first album, Chicago Transit Authority, is just, it's, I mean, it's all over the place, from soundscapes to guitar feedback to, you know, incredible cover of I'm a Man. And of course, they're they're another band that got a a sort of second wind in terms of fame and infamy because they were sampled so much in the house era later on in the 90s. The weird thing was, when I I met Roger, my husband, um, I didn't know a lot of pop music, but he was, you know, quite... He knew a lot of pop music, and his absolute favourite band was Chicago, mm. about which he is a walking encyclopedia. <laughs> and the fact that I had the record of 25 or 64 stood me in very good stead. Things <laughs> <laughs> could have worked out very differently. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So another very, very important track in my life. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, I mean, it, it sounds like, um, you know, the... the I mean, obviously reflected in your career as well, like the breadth of your taste goes out very wide in all directions. And I think that's for people growing up now, that's kind of not that much of an unusual thing. But like when I was growing up and prior to that, like you kind of had to align yourself with a certain type of music. Did you feel that growing up or did you feel free to kind of let your taste go out in all directions? No, I didn't feel the necessity to align to any particular style I know what you mean Um, but because I was sort of because until about the age of 14 I really hadn't come across pop music I I, I was just the square (laughs) you know because in those days everybody knew what was in the charts and Top of the Pops was the most important program on TV bar none and everybody knew what was going up the charts and what was coming down the charts I didn't have a clue (laughs) <laughs> so when I did finally discover it, it was just like sort of, oh, well, this is an interesting world. So no, I, I've always sort of had a, quite an eclectic taste for things. Um, I, I wouldn't have it any other way, really. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that certainly stood you in good stead because the soundtrack work you do, like you say, it's, it, you know, there's all manner of influences right the way through, all manner of... Of course, if you're making bespoke music for different films with different storylines and different characters you have to have that kind of range in order to reflect what mm. the director and people want out of the music yeah. I suppose. Well you never know what's what's going to be asked for and 
you know, sometimes you have to say, really, no, that's not my thing. <laughs> but um, the, the more things that you've got, the more likely you are to stay employed. Was that, was that work that you actively pursued or did you kind of fall into that? How did that come about, your soundtrack work? Um, well, I, I think what happened was that um, Art of Noise being basically an instrumental band, we got picked up by a lot of filmmakers and used in film and video and that sort of thing. So um, after a few years, some filmmakers came to us and asked us to do scores for them. That's how it started, really. I think the, the first film that we scored was a very strange film that you've probably never seen called Disorderlies. Mm. And, and it's an art of noise score and it's quite funny. But mm. it starred the Fat Boys. Oh my oh, god! Really? Well, now I have. Brilliant. I mean, to put those two things together. The this is Alan's happy place. Noise. This is my. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. Well, I'm. I should look it out. It's film, very yeah. silly, but it has its moments. This film. It sounds amazing. It sounds right up my street. If there's disco rap to be had, Anne's all over it like a rash. Well, fat oh. boys are always entertaining. <laughs> yeah, they are. They're funny. Funny as. <laughs> um, shall we touch on your your third phonographic memory then, Dave Brubeck? Dave Brubeck. Well, um, another thing that happened when I was about fourteen or fifteen was that I joined a dance band as a pianist. And as I said, I, I didn't know much about anything then, and I certainly didn't know much about jazz. I had really very little idea about reading chord symbols or anything like that. But it soon became obvious that if I didn't learn quickly, I was going to be way out of my depth. Mm. And since I was actually earning money in this dance band, I thought, well, oh, you know, better, better take note of this. So I took myself off to a jazz piano teacher, a fantastic teacher called um, Peter Sander. And in a relatively short space of time, he really sort of taught me the chord symbols, taught me how to understand them. And I made rapid progress, and I started listening to a lot of jazz pianists. And gosh, who to choose? You know, you start at Art Tatum, you've got Bill Evans, you've got Oscar Peterson, mm. Duke Ellington was also a great pianist. Um, and they're all brilliant, and they all have exactly their own style. And one of the one of the albums that I had was an album called um, Time Out by yeah. Dave Brubeck, which has Take Five on it. Mm -hmm. And there's a very good music book of transcriptions, very good, accurate transcriptions of um, the pieces on Time Out. And Strange Meadow Lark is one of them. And I remember learning it on the piano. And I, I played it on the piano and, and, I, can, and I really liked it. And then I, I sort of, I didn't play it for a while and then sadly a couple of years ago my father-in-law who was also a pianist died and um, we were sorting through his music books and I came across my copy of Time Out, the book which I'd lent him and so just a few months ago I took it out again and I started playing Strange Meadowlark and it brought back all sorts of happy memories and um, I think Dave Brubeck is, is rather um, maybe a little bit unfashionable at the moment as a jazz pianist but I've got a lot of time for him he was a really fantastic musician and um, 
really sort of expanded the boundaries of jazz. Introduced in the unsquare dance, he uses this wonderful sort of four plus three rhythms, which apparently mm. he'd heard from a Turkish folk band. Mm. And he was a pioneer of um, racially integrated jazz. He wouldn't he wouldn't play at venues that wouldn't allow him to have his African American bass player. You know, and mm. um, and he was one of these guys who he he, he lived. He lived way into his 90s. He had a very sort of straight lifestyle. He was married to the same woman for 70 years. Mm -hmm. And he, he was one of those people whose creative life is really sort of innovative and groundbreaking. But his personal life was really sort of quiet and secure and all those things. And I can relate to that <laughs> because I'm also quite square and, um, you know, very sort of staid and conservative in, in some ways in my, in my personal life. But, um, you know, I like to sort of spread my wings creatively. So it's so interesting to hear you describe him like that because I think that's so true. People forget how innovative he was and how he completely changed the this. You know, when Time Out came out, it was just so completely different to anything else anyone else would have been listening to. And it's such a shame because now I feel like I often hear Take Five being held up as an example of accessible jazz. You know, this is the jazz song that everybody knows, you know, as if it's kind of like just representative of like beginners jazz and I feel like that that means he kind of gets dismissed a little bit in terms of of all the innovative stuff he did and how new his sound was at the time yeah um, I'm, I mean take five uh, it's uh, actually written by Paul Desmond actually <laughs> I think it's the only track on the album that's not written by Dave Brubeck but uh, I mean quite a quite an achievement to have a hit 
mm. that's not only a jazz track, it's instrumental, and it's in 5-4. <laughs> yeah, totally. That's and the amazing thing, isn't it? The, the time signatures throughout the whole album are, are all over the place. And yeah. But people somehow manage to listen to it easily. And I think often when you have... Um, you know, more challenging times. It is more challenging. It is just more difficult for people to get their heads around. But there's something about the way that Brubeck puts those tracks together that even a real novice has no problem in following that tune and enjoying that tune. No, that's right. He has this very direct way of playing and he doesn't get overly obscure. It's, it's, it's beautiful stuff. It's mm. really beautifully arranged. Also, I remember reading a magazine article, I think just after he died, about the house that he lived in. Did you see this? I think it might have gone viral. He had this incredible house in the middle of a forest, just this incredible like 70s house with all this mahogany and like winding staircases and stuff. So, yeah, I mean, to be able to live somewhat conservatively in a house like that and then have this massive creative outlet. I mean, yeah. It's a good, yeah. uh, good, good life to aspire to. <laughs> yeah, I did re- remember reading something about um, when he died in the obituary. He, he was on the cover of Time magazine, mm. but he he felt uncomfortable about that because he was like the first jazz musician who'd been on the cover of Time magazine, and he thought certainly Duke Ellington should have been before mm. him, and he was pretty much appalled by that sort of racism in mm. American society. Mm. Yeah, definitely a good egg all around. And it's quite refreshing, you know, because I think most of the time when we think about um, uh, certainly pop stars and, and quite a lot of jazzers, let's be honest, it, it's, uh, we, we, we talk about the infamy and the bad behaviour and the, the wildness and the drugs and the this, that and the other and the gunplay of, of the people. Mm. But, you know, it's really nice that uh, you, can, you can be just as innovative and exciting and not mess up your life terribly. Yeah, you know, it's inspiring. Uh, I think we should all uh, take note of that. Yeah. Yeah, have, a little, have a little step back, put the drink down, write yeah. another song. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so what, are you, what excites you now? What are you working on now? Because you've done so much and you've picked up all of these awards along the way and you've spread out in so many different directions. Are there still things that you want to be working on? Are there things you're working on at the moment that are really exciting you? Um, yeah, I just love to work, really. Uh, everything has, is a new challenge. Everything is a new... It's a new piece of paper. It's a new program on the uh, Logic computer. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, what shall I do now? Yeah, I've got some very nice things coming up. I'm writing a piece for a Norwegian choir, which I'm really excited about because I haven't really written something like that before. It's, it's in English, but it's a girls' choir in Norway, and I, I just sort of love the idea of it. And um, I've got a few films and a few TV things. Yeah, it's good. And, and I'm actually, during the famous lockdown, I got a new piano. And I was very excited by this new piano. And I, um, I've started writing some new stuff, which I'm going to do on a new instrumental album for me. So, Brilliant. Um, yeah, that will be coming out. And I've finished mixing it. Amazing, amazing. Oh, of all the things to get at the start of lockdown, a brand new piano, perfect. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> if you can play it well. Yeah, well, I... I yeah, it would be no good to me, but it would be good to you. Yeah. <laughs> but lovely to speak to you today, Anne, and, and just thank you so much for all the music over the years, because really, um, just so many moments in that I can remember in my life, and so many soundtracks as well. 
and still so much more to come, I'm sure. So thank you so much for sharing your photographic memories with us today. It was really lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much. And it was very lovely to delve into my archives and find the three tracks that I wanted to talk about. <laughs> this wonderful podcast we'd like to say thank you very much for listening and we'd like to encourage you to share it about and get other people to listen to it too last week we had the joy of breaking into the uk charts once more that is all down to you my friends and please keep your support coming tell someone about the podcast give us a retweet share us on facebook write some graffiti on the wall 10 foot tall letters what goes around podcast it's the one yeah thanks guys <laughs>